This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, good evening. This is Brother Matthew with the Ministers of the New Covenant radio webcast. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that the Almighty hath made us able ministers of the New Covenant. I hope that you were here with me last week where we began to cover Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. So if you weren't, you can go back on my website at ministersnewcovenant.org and you can check out that sermon All right, on Colossians 2. 8 through 17, specifically verse 8 through 14, somewhere right in there. I want to pick it back up right where we left off because we did not finish exegeting Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 in a in-depth manner. The last thing that I talked about was what was the handwriting of ordinances that was against us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. We covered how that it was not the law of Yahweh. It wasn't. You ever heard a preacher say, you know, the law has been done away with. It's been nailed to the cross. We don't have to keep that old harsh law. You don't have to worry about the Sabbath or eating kosher or wearing zitzits or not shaving your beard if you're, if you're a man, etc., etc., etc. You don't have to worry about any of that. All that's been done away with at the cross of Christ, nailed to the cross. Well, the passage they get that from is Colossians 2, verse 14. And as I began to show last week, Colossians 2.14 has absolutely nothing to do with nailing the law to the cross. Zero. Instead, what is nailed to the cross in Colossians 2.14 is something that is against us and that is contrary to us. All right, The law is not against us. If we keep the law, we're blessed. But what is against us is if we break the law, that is, commit sin... Sin is transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. If we break the law, that is then held against us. It is as though we owe a debt to Almighty Yahweh, and sin in the Bible is spoken of as a debt. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, those that have sinned or trespassed against us. So, we also talked about briefly the Greek word kerographon, which most Bible translations recognize is a word Although translated handwriting of ordinances in the King James Version, it is a word that has to do specifically with a certificate of debt. As a matter of fact, and I didn't mention this last week, the custom of the receipt spike in some of your food joints now around your county or city where you live, if you'll notice, sometimes you go into a restaurant and after you pay your bill, you have the receipt, and you take it up to the counter, and you pay your bill, they take your receipt, and they puncture a hole in it. And they put it over what's called a receipt spike. That receipt spike, if you study out the origins of it, stems from the ancient practice of taking a carographon, a certificate of debt, and puncturing a hole into that certificate to show that the debt had been paid. And that's exactly what you do at the restaurant. They puncture a hole through it showing that this has been paid and is no longer 
held up as a debt to this particular individual. Well, does it not make sense that Yeshua on the torture stake blotted out that karagraphon that was contrary to us and against us, that record of our sins, that debt that we owed, but that we could not pay because none of us are perfect, and Yeshua was. Does it not make sense that he would nail that to his cross? What happens when you nail that certificate to the cross? You puncture it. You put a hole in it. It's just like with the receipt spike. That's what's going on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, I do want to consider an excerpt from a book by Dr. Samuel Bakioki. He was a late Seventh-day Adventist scholar. He passed away not too long ago. He wrote a book entitled From Sabbath to Sunday. And he states this on pages 349 through 350 of that book concerning the word karagraphon. Quote, Most commentators interpret the karagraphon either as a certificate of indebtedness resulting from our transgressions or a book containing the record of sin used for the condemnation of mankind. Both renderings, which are substantially similar, can be supported from rabbinic literature and apocalyptic literature. In Judaism, as stated by E. Lois, the relationship between man and the Mighty One was often described as that between a debtor and his creditor. For example, a rabbi said, when a man sins, the Mighty One writes down the debt of death. If the man repents, the debt is canceled, that is declared valid. In the Apocalypse of Elijah is found the description of an angel holding a book explicitly called a karagraphon in which the sins of the seer are recorded. On the basis of these and similar examples, it is quite obvious that the karagraphon is either a certificate of sin indebtedness or the record book of sins, but not the law of Moses, since the latter, as is wisely pointed out by Weiss, is not a book of records. End of quote. See, the law of Moses is not a karagraphon. It's simply a law that is to be obeyed. A karagraphon is when you transgress something. You owe a debt because you've disobeyed. And so what is taking place in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, is that Yahweh has forgiven the Colossian believers of their sins by erasing the debt that they had incurred, decreeing them to be worthy of death. Yahweh took this out of the way, nailing it to the cross of Messiah. Our Messiah, Yeshua, paid the full penalty for sin when he hung upon the tree at Calvary, cursed of Yahweh with the sins of the people of Yahweh, laid upon him. Isaiah 53, verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Yet Yahweh, that is the Father, hath laid on him, that is Yeshua the Son, the iniquity or the sins of us all. So Yeshua, when he was on the torture stake of Calvary, he took our place. It was a substitutionary atonement. He, as a substitute for us, was put to death, not by the Roman soldiers, but Isaiah 53 tells us it was by Yahweh. Yahweh made his soul an offering for sin, and it pleased Yahweh Elohim to crush the Son. And that doesn't make any sense if you only look at the Son because He was sinless. But when you recognize that the sins of the people of Israel were placed upon the back of Yeshua the Messiah and He took our place in His own body upon the torture stake, it makes perfect sense. He was wounded for our transgressions, not His own. He was bruised for our iniquities, not His own. What was He bruised for? 
Our keeping of the law? No. No, our breaking of the law. Our violating of the law. Proving again that the law is a holy, righteous thing. The cross of Messiah shows us how righteous the law of Yahweh is. And therefore, on that torture stake, he blotted out the certificate of debt with its decrees, which was against us and contrary to us. He took it out of the way and he nailed it, punctured a hole right through it. He nailed it to his cross. Oh, it's so beautiful when you understand what Colossians 2, 13 through 14 is talking about. And if you venture back with me to last week in Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul is trying to tell the Colossian believers, look, none of these traditions... Nothing that the Pharisees or anybody that wants to promote the tradition of the elders, none of this is going to add to what Yeshua has done for you. Beware, Colossians 2, lest any man take you captive through this philosophy, through these vain deceits, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Messiah. So Paul is emphasizing Messiah. Messiah has done this for you. Messiah is the one that taught the written Torah and he has forgiven you of your transgressions of the written Torah. He nailed that record of sin to his torture stake. And nothing that the Pharisees or anybody else that wants to promote the traditions, nothing they say will add to the finished work of Messiah. Don't try to exalt the traditions of men and make them on an equality with what Yeshua has done for us. And also, don't try to exalt them and make them on an equality with the law of Yahweh that Yeshua did keep, teach, and uphold. And he taught us to keep it as well in Matthew 5, verse 19. So, the notion that what is being blotted out in Colossians 2.14 is the law of Moses is completely out of context. And it only comes about through a preconceived bias against the law of Yahweh in the first place. You'll notice that when you hear preachers and teachers teach that Colossians 2.14 is saying the law has been nailed to the cross, they only quote that one sentence. They will not walk you through the text. Remember, brothers and sisters, Paul wrote the book of Colossians to the assembly at Colossae as one cohesive letter. The only way to understand the letter is to read the letter. You cannot rip a sentence out of one verse in the letter and then try to apply that to what you want or what you think. No, when you perform detailed exegesis on the passage, everything begins to dovetail together and you recognize that the law's not been blotted out. It's our sins against the law that have been blotted out. So then in Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And this passage is simply stating that Yahweh, through the death of his son, Yeshua, made a mockery of all the earthly tyrants and authorities. He openly showed them his authority and his power by punishing sin. And at the same time, resurrecting his son to eternal life. And brothers and sisters, you must believe that the son of Yahweh died for your sin. He really did die. I've got another message on that entitled, Yeshua died, Yahweh cannot. You can find that at ministersnewcovenant.org. So this goes right along with the forgiveness of sins motif that Paul had discussed since Colossians 2 verse 9. So then we come to Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Let's read it. 
Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Messiah. Now, these verses bring us back full circle to verse 8. Here in this text, Paul is not condemning anyone for observing the sacred days of Yahweh commanded in the Torah. Paul is admonishing the Colossians to not let any man, remember Colossians 2.16, let no man, that parallels with Colossians 2.8, beware lest any man. He's telling them not to let any man judge them in their meat and their drink, that is more correctly translated, their eating and their drinking. You can look up both of those Greek words and you'll see meat and drink is properly translated in their eating and drinking. And he's referring to their eating and their drinking at these festivities of Yahweh. You're not to allow, you're not to be concerned with how these men of Colossians 2, eight and verse 16 are trying to judge you or condemn you in your eating and drinking at these festivities. He goes on and says, or in their sharing or in regard to the holy days, the new moons, or the Sabbaths, or particularly the weekly Sabbath. You'll notice in the KJV it says the Sabbath days. The word days, though, is in italics in the King James Version. And when you're reading the King James Version, if you ever run across a word that is italicized, that means that that word is supplied by the translators. Sometimes I think they supply it accurately. Here they do not. Because this italicized plural word days has led some people to think that the Sabbath being talked about is the feast day Sabbaths in Colossians 2.16 and not the weekly Sabbath. That's not true. Seventh-day Adventism has concocted an entire doctrine whereby they observe the weekly Sabbath, the weekly Shabbat, but they believe that the annual Shabbats, the annual Sabbaths, have been abrogated. They have been done away with. When they read Colossians 2.16, they say that's only talking about the feast days, the yearly Sabbaths, not the weekly. That's not true, and let me prove it to you. The reason we know it's not true, let's read it again, Colossians 2.16, let no man therefore judge you in eating or in drinking or in sharing or respect of an holy day. You see that word holy day? That word's used in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, to refer to the annual festivals. This verse is referring to the three times in the year, according to Exodus 23 and also chapter 34, that all the males of Israel are to appear before Yahweh at the place that he has chosen to put his name, the annual festivals. So the festivals are covered right away in the term holy day, and then we have or of the new moon. And this is very peculiar because a lot of people have done away with this new moon the new moon was the first day of the biblical month. The reason it was titled the new moon is because the months biblically were lunar months. The months were not solar. The year was solar. But the months had to do with the lunar cycle. And on the first day of each lunar month, on the day of the new moon, it was a holy time. It was not counted as one of the six working days. You can read about this in Ezekiel 46, verses 1 and 3. Also, Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23. As a matter of fact, and this is where a lot of people uh, do not take heed to the written Torah of Yahweh or the written word of Yahweh, 
The new moon was a day on which no buying and selling was done. It was a day on which gainful employment ceased. Read Amos chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 and you'll see that. So the new moon is mentioned right here with the holy days and the Sabbath as well. So it's not just an ordinary day, obviously. No, it's an extraordinary day. It's not a work day. It's a special worship day. So let no man judge you in respect of an holy day, that's the yearly days, or of the new moon, that's the monthly days, or of the Sabbath. Remember, Sabbath days, the word days there is italicized. It's not in the Greek text. Well, what's left? We've covered the yearly. We've covered the monthly. Well, we know what's left. It's the weekly. So Colossians 2.16 is talking about the weekly Sabbath. It's just that Seventh-day Adventism has misinterpreted Colossians 2.16, just like nominal Christianity has in thinking that he's talking about some of the law has been done away with. Neither interpretation is accurate. Both of these faulty interpretations do not take into account two things. Number one, the oral Torah, the traditions. Colossians 2.8 talks about the traditions. Colossians 2.18 through 22, a passage we'll get to shortly, talks more about the traditions. And number two, they don't consider the context of the passage. All right. So, when Paul admonishes the Colossians to not let any man judge them in their meat and their drink, that is, their eating and their drinking, or in their sharing in the holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths, what is he talking about? How would others judge them in regard to these things? What is Paul talking about? Well, others would come in and try to spoil or take captive the Colossians through philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of men, and rudiments of the world. Do you see how it fits together? It's so beautiful when you understand this. It goes right back to verse 8. We've seen how that the tradition of the elders was in practice during the lifetime of Yeshua. Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, also Luke chapter 11. We've also seen how that Paul, prior to his conversion to believing in Yeshua as the Messiah, he would be known as Shaul, which is the Hebrew name for Saul. Paul was a practicing Pharisee. The Pharisees were the sect in the Israelite faith in the first century that believed in this so-called oral Torah. Shaul was a Pharisee prior to his conversion. So Paul here is warning the Colossian Christians about those who would seek to impose their non-biblical practices, their traditions, upon the Colossians sharing in the holy times of Yahweh. That's what Paul's saying. Let none of these men try to condemn you or judge you in your observance of the written Torah by trying to impose in on you their traditions, their philosophy, their deceit, their rudiments of the world. Don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. That's exactly what Shaul or what Paul is saying. And this is also seen in noticing Colossians 2.18 where he says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Once again, Paul is warning the Colossians of people that will try to deceive them not through the written Torah, but through these other things. Voluntary humility. Trying to appear 
as though you're some kind of humble person because of these ascetic things that you do, practicing this asceticism. Also, the worshiping of angels. Where is that found in the written Torah? The written Torah doesn't talk about worshiping of angels. It doesn't at all. Once again, we see what's taking place here is traditions, not the Torah. Colossians 2, 20-22. Wherefore, if you be dead with the Messiah from the rudiments of the world, not of the Torah, but the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. End of quote. I've actually had people quote this verse to me to try to tell me that I did not need to be concerned with the dietary laws. And they said, Matthew, you're saying touch not, taste not, handle not. And I said, did you read the text actually in Colossians 2, 20 through 22? Because I'm saying do not touch, taste, or handle that which Yahweh says do not touch, taste, or handle. But Colossians 2, 20 through 22 says at the end, after the commandments and doctrines of men, not of Yahweh, but of men. You have to recognize the context or else you are going to grossly misinterpret this text in Colossians chapter 2. So you should see how Paul continues on after Colossians 2, 16 through 17. He continues on in the chapter mentioning again and again the ways of man and not the ways of the Torah of Yahweh. Paul does not hesitate for one second to warn the Colossians of how damaging it would be for them to let others rob them of the purity of the Torah and the awesomeness of seeing Yeshua the Messiah in the holy days by allowing these others to come in and impose upon them a man-made way, a traditional oral Torah way of observing these set-apart times. Now, I should also point out, before I close, that Paul makes it clear in Colossians 2, verse 17. This is a verse I skipped over a little bit earlier. Let me get back to it. In verse 17, he says that these days are shadows of things to come. Let's read 16 and 17 together again. Let no man therefore judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect or sharing of an holy day yearly or of the new moon, the monthly, or of the Sabbath, the weekly. Verse 17 which are a shadow of things to come. Now, let me focus on that first. Notice Paul uses the present tense word are, which are a shadow. In the Greek, it is present tense. Not which were a shadow, but which are a shadow. And then he says of things to come in the future. To come means future tense, again, with the word are. So he doesn't say which were a shadow of things that already came. No, he says which are a shadow of things to come. Now, how could the holy days, the new moons and the Sabbath, be present tense, a shadow of something to come, if they were not being observed? If nobody's observing them, they're not a shadow of anything. But as long as you're observing them in the purity of the written Torah, they're a shadow of things that are to come. And then he goes on, in the end of verse 17, and says, But the body is of the Messiah. And there's a couple ways to look at this, but I want to focus in on the italicized word is. The word is in verse 17 does not belong in the Greek text, much like the word days in verse 16. 
Both are italicized. So without reading the italicized is, we see verse 17 says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Messiah. Verse 17 could be saying this. It is the body of Messiah that is to regulate how these days, holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths are to be observed. Not these men that are coming in with their traditions, but allow those in the congregation to study the written Torah and make sure that you understand by Yahweh's law how to observe these things. The body of the Messiah is to be the judge on these things, not these extra-biblical practices that are being promoted by these men. That's how I understand Colossians 2.17. Let me get to the word shadow. Sometimes we tend to think that if something is a shadow, it must be a bad thing, but not so in Hebrew thought. In Hebrew thought, a shadow is a precious replica of the original. For instance, in Exodus 25, verse 40, Hebrews 8, 5, and Hebrews 9, 23 through 24, we learn that the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. The Exodus text here show that the earthly tabernacle was even a shadow during the days of Moses. Now, did this mean that the earthly tabernacle was of no use or unimportant to those Israelites during the days of Moses? Well, of course not. Also, think about this. The festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths have always been shadows of things to come. They've always been. They were shadows during the Old Covenant. But the Israelites still kept them, recognizing that they were shadows, and in Hebrew thought, that meant they were precious. They were a shadow of something greater. Not to say that they weren't great, but it's just that they shadowed something that was even greater than them. The Israelites kept them with all their heart because they knew they were special shadows representing things of great value. Just imagine an Israelite walking up to Moses during his day and saying this, Well, Moses, I don't think we need to keep the Passover. It's just a shadow of something to come. Now, would he be right about it being a shadow? Yes. Would he be right about not needing to keep it because it was a shadow? Absolutely not. He would be wrong. A shadow is a precious thing. In order to understand it in our modern day thinking, we might liken it to looking at pictures of your family while on a trip. You know, I love to be with my wife and my five beautiful children. But if I'm away on a trip, ministering somewhere or for whatever reason, and I don't have them with me, I also like to look at a picture of them. Or I might say, a shadow of them. I pull it out of my wallet, and I look at my family. Is the picture the greatest thing? No. Being with a literal family is the greatest thing. But is the picture a bad thing? No. It's a shadow of something greater. I hope you can understand that. Now, it's also interesting to note briefly that in a prophecy in the book of Isaiah 66, we find a kingdom motif. Isaiah 66 is a kingdom prophecy. And we see in Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23, that there will be worship on the Sabbaths and the new moons taking place in the kingdom. Now, whether we're talking about the millennium kingdom or the new heavens and the new earth, I personally believe Isaiah 66 is a reference to the millennium kingdom. That is the 1,000-year reign of Yeshua the Messiah on this earth, renewed in some fashion, 
During that 1,000-year reign, we will worship from one Sabbath to another and one new moon to another. And then after that 1,000 years, Revelation 21 says, John saw in a vision the new heavens and new earth coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. But Isaiah here, in the 66th chapter of his book, prophesies about the kingdom. And even in the kingdom, there will be such worship. Now, it is thus evident that these days have not been abolished. For if they had been, why in the world would we see them mentioned in a kingdom prophecy? I've read some very excellent material on this verse elsewhere, and I want to encourage you to continue to study this text of Scripture from the perspective of various individuals. But I do want to offer you, again, a free book, free and postpaid, that I'll send to anybody that calls me or sends me an email. This book is titled, Learning to Love His Law. And I'll send it to you if you just contact me by the telephone number or the email on my website that you'll hear coming up shortly. I love you and I appreciate you. Until next week, according to His will, may Yahweh bless you. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.